Welcome back to the Seat Time Podcast, and for the November episode, we are chit-chatting with Skylar Howes. Just recently announced that he was going to be racing for Team HRC on the Monster Energy Rally Team, so congrats to Skylar. Had an amazing conversation, learning about how that came about and how the contract with Husky kind of... uh, went separate ways. So I thank him for opening up about that. One of the more interesting parts of the conversation for me was learning about the airbags that they wear and how it is very much paying attention and can tell them the amount of G-forces when they wreck or when things get a little uh, crazy out there on the rally course. If you guys are enjoying Seat Time, please make sure that you go to shop.seattime.co to support what we are doing here at Seat Time. Of course, we have launched the Utility Can Caddy. So if you have a utility jug that you use to fill up your dirt bike, maybe some lawn equipment, anything out there in your life, go get yourself a Utility Can Caddy so you can stay organized AF. Guys, thanks for being here. Let me know what you think about the episode wherever you are listening and or watching, and enjoy the November episode of the Seat Time Podcast. Dude, so like, how are you doing on this fine Thursday night, man? This Thursday is really nice. I uh, just went cycling for the first time since my injury, and that went really good. So I'm getting back on the program now. I'm going to start riding here pretty soon. So it was a good day. Yeah, and then you were saying, too, that you just got into a new spot. So you're not only are you kind of like back being able to do the things, but you're also just kind of got moved in. Are you still in Utah, though? Utah! (laughs) Utah! Yeah, I uh, I mean, for ever since I moved out of my parents, I've been just bouncing around at whoever's place would let me, you know, stay in their casita or their spare bedroom or something. And now officially at 31 years of age, I finally bought my first house and I could not be more stoked. Congratulations. Dude. Is it is it everything you hoped and dreamed? Uh, and more. I You know, I've never been this excited to spend all of my money. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It is a weird feeling, isn't it, man? Yeah. But where, what, what, why did you choose what you chose there in Utah? You know what I mean? Like what, what kind of spot and all that jazz? So the area, like the, the neighborhood in the part of town that I live in is like the coolest spot ever. Every single kid around here is ripping some type of pit bike or you know some electric scooter or a like a golf cart or something like kids are all over the place ripping uh a bunch of kids built like into the side of the hill like probably three blocks away like the massive dirt jumps so it's like yeah yeah it's like the perfect place this is a place that i would have dreamed of as a kid like growing up in and the spot that I chose, I wasn't really planning on moving, especially before Dakar, but I was just scrolling through, looking at properties, just kind of wishing. And, uh, this place popped up. It's a brand new house and it has an RV garage. So like this massive garage, just perfect. And just to like, you know, kind of smaller house, but on a good piece of property. And it is right back up against the hill that I ride out of. Like there's a little hard enduro zigzag trail that goes up and over the hill right behind my house now and it takes me about one um, one and a half minutes to ride from my front door out to endless riding so it's like the most perfect location for a rider ever i'm still congratulations sir congratulations now did you mention the name of the town you're in or are you keeping that secret so that nobody (laughs) else moves there 
No, dude, I, I would love to gatekeep St. George as much as possible because it's my hometown <laughs> and I love it. But and there are so many people moving here, specifically the side by sides that are just absolutely hammering the desert. So all of like my favorite trails that I grew up, grew up with, uh, you know, out in the sand dunes and stuff are just getting absolutely hammered, but I can't be too mad because there's people out there enjoying the outdoors and I'm happy about it. That's it's so interesting you say that because that's kind of how I feel too. Like I hear a lot of the negative attitude towards side-by-sides, four-wheelers and stuff. It was three-wheelers, then it was four-wheelers, now it's side-by-sides, right? Like all that kinds of stuff, uh, quad tards and stuff. But it's like, I'm like, I'm, I think I'm such a, let's just all hang out, man. Let's get along kind of dude. And it's like, but they're doing it. Like they're not, you know, stuck inside on the couch, not being active. Like they're doing that. That's cool, right? You know, so I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, that's why, I mean, it's tough. Like, that's why I love living here so much because everyone is so active. Everyone's outside. Everyone's, you know, enjoying the desert, the same stuff that I enjoyed. And uh, granted, there's a lot more people here now doing it. So it's just getting a little beat up, but everyone's still doing it. Yeah, man. Okay, a little bit more on that injury. So was that the rally of Morocco where you had that wreck in the prologue? And it sounds like you were, like, you, you definitely had some broken bones, but they were not bones that wouldn't take too long to heal <laughs> and that you, you know, you've already said you're back on the bike, right? So that's, or excuse me, cycling. You may not be back on the dirt bike, but tell us about that. Like what happened with the injury? How's the recovery been? And, and what's, uh, you know, now to the future looking like for uh, going into, into Dakar? Yeah, it was kind of a bummer because, you know, coming straight into a brand new team, first race on the bike, first day, not even like the first stage it was just the prologue and halfway through i just hit that big hole in the sand like it's kind of it was almost like a whoop and but it was just two like sandbars kind of stuffed together and i i mean if i went like a foot more to the left it probably wouldn't have been a big deal but i tried to wheel tap it and i wheel tapped one bump too early and set the front wheel down into the deepest part of the hole and just my fault kind of a dumb deal and it hit so hard that it swapped me sideways and went down super hard. In fact, the airbag recorded the second that my head hit the dirt straight was 25 G's. So my, my helmet and my head absorbed the 25 G impact. So that's heavy, but my leg, that's heavy. Yeah. I broke the, uh, the tibia plateau in my knee. So, which is actually good news. I thought I like smoked my knee and uh that's sort of like my mcl or something but after the mri i actually just broke the bone a tiny bit too it's really not bad but it's pretty bruised which is actually what's taken the longest time it's kind of painful because it's bruised and then um, at the time i thought i broke my back um which i'm no stranger to also but it turns out it was just a little bit of uh nerve damage which is actually you know, kind of a weird thing. I just made it feel like my, my low back and my side had like a scab on it, um, which was really strange. But so after cycling today, you know, like the, my leg feels good. Um, and my back just feels kind of like it has a bruise on it, which is not bad at all. So I'm better essentially going to get, yeah, a little bit better than a scab. <laughs> it doesn't feel all like sensitive and weird now, which is, which is good, but no, so I'm going to be get like full back to the uh, the training program and cycle kind of every single day and on the rowing machine and back in the gym, and swimming and all that kind of business and get fully back into like a conditioned shape 
and then hopefully next week we'll uh, we'll start riding after I see the physio. So yeah, on on I would say on a pretty good track to recover and get back into pretty good shape. I mean, just just about two months of training before Dakar, which is I I would consider you know fair enough. It'll put me in a yeah. I, I think a good spot for Dakar, and then well, yeah, we'll let her rip. Hell yeah. Now I have to ask about the airbags. To me, they're relatively new in the sense of that, like we see so many of y'all wearing them now. Now we know that they've had more airbags on a lot more on-road motorcycle racers for a long time. What trend, what is that like just in general? Like you said, you, the 25 G's, like it recorded that, like that's pretty dang impressive. But what was that like the first couple of times that you were riding with this thing and then you like it went off and you had to adjust? Yeah, the airbag is at the very beginning when we started wearing it, it was still kind of in development and they're only just released it to the public. In fact, I don't even think it's fully out yet, but um, it's required now by all riders to wear that airbag in in FIM rallies. And at the time, like when they first started coming out with it, as soon as they mandated it, we were all kind of bummed out because it was heavy, like super heavy, really hot. It didn't breathe at all. So you just get super overheated in the thing. And then like, you felt like you were wearing just, you know, a 20 pound weighted vest. And we've gone through like 10 different revisions of it now. And almost, I like can't ride without it. Like I'll go ride with like an enduro trail or like a turn track or at the motocross track without it. But if I'm riding anything on the rally bike, whether I'm training or racing, or if I'm racing like a, the regular motorcycle, but like a high speed race, like Vegas Torino or something, I wear the airbag all the time. And it's really cool because it has a computer on it. So when it registers that you're going fast enough, um, if you just change your position, so like I've had it happen where I hit like a camel grass and did a full flying W and it recorded that like, oh, he's about to crash and it deployed like just as my feet came up over my head it deployed and then I was able to recover you know get back on the seat and then you have to kind of ride around like the Michelin man a little bit until it deflates which you know takes about uh, it takes a couple minutes for it to start deflating but there's sometimes that it'll deploy like when you really don't want it you'll just tip over in the dunes and just it you know inflates you got to try and pick up your bike and you're all you know (laughs) puffed up but when you have a gnarly crash like a really big crash that thing has saved my ass a few times now it's it's nice to have when you have a big one you mentioned that it takes some time to deflate you know and you're walking around like bo bindum right the michelin man um is that is it usable again after that or once it deflates it's kind of like the one that's in the car it's just it would have to be reset no it's got it's essentially like a like a air mattress so it just puffs up it's got cartridges in the back and one cartridge will deploy the entire airbag and then after that deflates you have two cartridges total so you can get two crashes basically out of it and then if you're out of like a refueling zone or something they mandate that you carry an extra cartridge with you on the bike and it's as easy as unzipping the little pouch unscrewing the old cartridge and screwing a new one back in and plugging it back in and you're good to go and we got more crashes yeah you got more life-saving moments ahead. <laughs> yeah. Now, is there a automatic butt wipe um, monitor also that happens? It's like the airbag deployed. He probably needs to change his diaper also. Like, is that yeah. in the works yet? <laughs> Shoot, dude. I don't know. Maybe they, 
I have to wear a condom catheter when I race rally, so maybe a diaper would be a good one. Oh, dude, yeah. See, I've always wondered, like, does did they just pee themselves? But you're like, yes, but it goes into a catch can, not just into your race wear. <laughs> yeah, there's some dudes out there that just pee. Their, they have to come in every single day and do laundry because they pee the pants while they're in there in, while they're racing, but. I don't know if I just got a small bladder, but I have to wear that condom catheter or else I would be just, I'd have to pee my pants like five times. Yeah. Dumb question on that. Like where does the, the catch bladder hang out? Is it, is it something uh, you that... just, you just run the tube straight down, like on the outside of your boot and it just goes straight to the ground. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's way better than carry around urine. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like whether you peed your pants or you know it were to go to like a catch bladder or something like that like you're like yeah, yeah. let's hang on to that let's add a couple pounds of uh <laughs> of, un of, of urine to the to the body mass yeah. well it's funny because i was gonna ask you like what don't we understand about rally and i i mean that's already like one answer condom catheters right there like that is definitely something i didn't understand but on the more serious note like Truly, like, what is it about rally that us weekend warriors, right, like here in Texas or around the world, that just we don't get, like, about rally? Um, I would say there's mm, probably this, the, the amount of distance that we're actually traveling. So, like, when you watch the Dakar rally or if any rally, if you just follow it at all, like – you see helicopter shots and you see some things, you, you know, interviews and we talk about the day or whatever, but in reality, like we have to wake up at two 30 in the morning and then get on the bike somewhere around three 30 or four and stuff our face with food ride in freezing cold temperatures. Cause it's the winter time. And this last year it was raining the whole time. So it's damn near snowing on us, freezing cold rain. And we got to be on the highways for up to five hours or more sometimes and then we get to the start of the special right when the sun comes up. We got maybe like an hour to like warm up, eat some more food or whatever we got to do to get ready for the special. And then race the special from anywhere from three to six hours or more, depending on how gnarly it is. And then get back on the highway after we've done that and ride on the highway again, maybe another two to three hours to the next bivouac. And do that every single day for two weeks straight. And it's like... the you know, when you see the helicopter footage and it's just, you know, we're ripping through the dunes or whatever, and it looks all gnarly. That is just the tiniest little speck of actually what we're going through about the whole day. And there's so much stuff that happens throughout that day too. Like you have to dodge camels or like the amount of butt pucker moments that you have, like hitting stuff, and you're, ah, you know, and just, it's like you're on edge all the time and you have to be so focused. And then there's the navigation. You know, a lot of people don't, they, they think that we're following a GPS track or anything like that. Mm. We have just a piece of paper with MapQuest style directions and a odometer <laughs> and a compass that we got to follow. That's the best description I've ever heard of a rally book, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it literally is like it, MapQuest with hand drawings for every intersection. So do that. Yeah, it's, I don't know, like in America, it's the hardest thing to uh, explain because a lot of the times when you say rally, you would think like WRC style, like stage rally in a car where you have a nav navigator who's just calling out pace notes. But it's like, it's just a whole different animal because 
the there are no pace notes it's just navigation notes so you still have to be able to you know read the terrain and bike guys you have to be able to navigate read the road book and read the terrain all at the same time and it's just i don't know like when you see it on tv you might think okay it's another race and you have more competition or whatever but it's like it's it's the most raw form of racing because everyone out there has to interpret the rules, the road book, the terrain, everything the same as you. There's no knowledge of the course. There's no like, uh, yeah, practicing. There's no course markings other than the piece of paper that rolls on the, in a box on your handlebar. So it's just, I don't know, like, like America, it's tough because it's not a spectator sport, so it's not very popular, but it is the most badass race on the planet i think and with the way that rally has grown it, to me outsider right like i i did the baja rally in 2014 right but then since then i've just kind of been a bystander now but it looks to me like rally's gotten a, a lot bigger um throughout the past 10 years Do, how different are each type of rally race if that makes sense it's kind of similar these days because we have Dakar, which is in Saudi Arabia, and then we have Abu Dhabi, which is almost in the exact same area in the in the empty quarter. So we had, I think, four days, four or five days in the empty quarter this last year. And then two months later, we went to Abu Dhabi, and we had the exact same. We were, I think we were like less than 20 miles away from the exact same place that we were racing in Dakar. So Abu Dhabi is very similar, but it's 100% dunes. So in Dakar, we have we go through the whole northern part of the country, and you get tons of rocks and mountains and a bunch of different variations. Abu Dhabi is just straight 100% dunes for a week, and then Morocco is way more destroyed than you would think it is. It's like really hammered terrain, uh, very rocky, lots of broken riverbeds with just you know jagged rocks, and just the terrain is hammered down there. It's it's actually one of my favorite races because of that, because it's so you have to be able to like read the terrain in order to ride fast there. <clears throat> and then Sonora, obviously this, this year was on the calendar and it just was such a bummer that that one didn't really turn out because of the environmental group. They came in and blocked us from using the dunes. Um, they said that the dunes should be protected and they weren't going to allow us to race through there. So that was like, set to be probably one of the best races on the entire calendar. And then in order to get around the dunes, they just had to take like dirt roads everywhere. And it was kind of oh, straightforward, yeah. not really hard navigation and just, yeah, kind of, kind of a bummer. And so they took that one off the, off the calendar because they can't go back to the dunes. So <clears throat> a bummer on that one, but, um, uh, what else is there? What else am I missing? So, what about like, the Morocco one? Yeah, so so Morocco is sick. Um, like that one, I like the most probably because I won there last year. But yeah, you know, it just totally bit me in the ass because I said, "Oh, you got to be able to read the terrain really good," and I'd read it wrong, and <laughs> I paid the price. Yeah. But, um, no, R R Morocco is super cool. This this next year they're going to replace Sonora with um, uh, Spain and Portugal which is cool because we're getting back to like a multi-country rally, which is, which yeah. is really exciting. That was, I think the hope with that car is to be able to go to the surrounding countries too, and kind of make like a middle Eastern, like multi multi-country rally. And of course 
politics get in the way and we can't do any of that because people are dumb and can't get along. Yeah, it's like, guys, we just want to race dirt bikes. Like, we don't... <sighs> <laughs> we can't have that. We can't have that. Apparently. Yeah. Well, what have you learned... If I remember correctly, there I want to say it was 2019 was when you tried to do your fundraiser or when you did your fundraiser and you got a chance to start really getting into rally. Like, what have you learned since you kind of got started, you know, five, six years later that you're like, holy shit, this is now what I know about rally when I back then I thought it was X, Y and Z. Well, I think I came in at like a perfectly wrong timing because now it looks like, you know, a handful of the guys are retiring. And I also came in like thinking that if I had a halfway decent result that I'd just get straight onto a factory ride because Mm. that's all I've watched before is you got like an enduro racer or some type of desert racer or someone who had success. They went, they did decent in a couple stages and they got straight onto a factory team and then they groomed them into like, you know, being a champion. So I'm like, all right, I won the Sonora rally, got my free entry fee. I just got to go down there and like, get a couple of really good stage finishes and I'll be in. Well, it was directly like in the heat of everyone's career. So nobody's leaving. They don't have any open spots and they're not going to add any new spots. So that was kind of a bummer, but I got super fortunate that Garrett Poucher was, you know, super interested in rally. So he essentially paid, I still had to fundraise and help his, like his and my effort to go there. But, um, you know, essentially like he paid for it. And so I got my first Dakar, which I hit a kid on a scooter and had to abandon, um, day six, uh, with a separated shoulder. And then the next year I got to go back three months after I broke my neck and had my neck fused and Garrett made it possible to go back to that one as well. And that's when I finished ninth and I had like some good stage finishes, but then again, still, didn't matter. Stage finishes, top 10 overall result. No, no factory ride. Nobody's even interested. So I'm like, okay, that sucks. So then Garrett had a crash and it was left to me on my own. So that's when I like really went nuts with the fundraising and like sold all my bikes, sold everything I own, sold all the t-shirts and just went crazy fundraising. And essentially with the help of like you know, small businesses, local sponsors, and a ton of people like donating a hundred bucks, 300 bucks, a thousand bucks, whatever it might be. I was able to fundraise and go back. And then I did myself pretty good with that one because I was like, all right, if I top five, then I'll get big bonuses from some of these like bigger sponsors. And so when I did finish top five, I was able to come home and have some money in the bank. So I was, I wasn't like totally screwed if I didn't totally have, broke. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I didn't get the factory ride, I'd at least be able to operate and go back and like get a, you know, job and all that kind of business. So that after that and learning what it took, like how much it took to actually pay my own privateer way to go and all of that, it, I don't know. It's a weird thing to say, like you want success earlier because then it becomes easier, but I definitely wouldn't have appreciated like, you know, everything else that I have now. And it wouldn't have made me the, without the struggle, I wouldn't be the worker or have like the knowledge of mechanics and bike setup and all of that, that I do now. So going into the factory team, learning how to develop a bike, what it means to test triple clamps and pivot points and linkages and suspension and 
the ergonomics of the bike and how to like develop a, a winning machine. Uh, like, I don't know, knowing what I know about how to operate a team, how to like fundraise, what it actually means to be in the team, what actually matters as far as like a resume and, you know, how to get into that kind of stuff. You know, I, I thought that I would help someone out and like be like their mentor and try to coach them into it. And then no matter how much like me personally, I wanted to tell someone how to do it. Cause I was like, I learned the hard way. You know, I had to learn all these lessons. I got I know what it takes now. Just do what I tell you to do. They're still going to make their own decisions and right. do it their own way. Because obviously everyone thinks they got the right way and they got it figured out. And so you know, you just have to sit back and be like, all right, well, you know, all you can do is kind of lend whatever advice you might have. And then someone's going to take it from there. Cause I guess that's like my whole goal and what I have learned now with rally and how, like what, where my knowledge of, has gone now is I love the sport a lot and I had to struggle a lot to get to my position. And I know there's a lot of other people here in USA specifically that have a ton of skills that could probably do really well in rally. And if they don't have to go through the same struggles as I did, and they can be, you know, better than me, then all for it. Because as you say, the sport has been growing. It's been getting bigger and bigger and more recognized within USA. And if that can continue to happen and USA becomes a, a place like Europe is, because like, dude, there's guys, amateur guys that make a living off of their Dakar rally and they're not even they're barely finishing the top 50 they're just wow. they're like amateur dudes that are out there that are getting full complete full <clears throat> rides and sponsors from local companies i'm like dude if we could do stuff like that if we get you know companies or whatever support it based out of us usa then a lot more people might okay like a uh a bucket list is one thing, but if you have like a legit racer, he's like, Hey, let's go try the Dakar and see if this is what I want to do with my motorcycle racing career. And they actually get like a shot at it. Then that's yeah. like, that's my hope. That would be so sick. Like to, to, yeah. to get the door open for a lot of other people, you know? Do you, do you think that the, what you're saying there on the more European side and the, the support is that, does it have that like F1 prestige? Cause it, seems like that kind of is like a european thing where like someone wants to be a part of this and show that they kind of have the ability to put money into an event like an f1 and i'm wondering if dakar now and and obviously the the series is that are that are being supported around it now on this fim level that there's a little bit of that um and where that doesn't seem to exist in the united states as much yeah they're definitely trying to to change the dynamic there with like media the thing with Dakar is it's so hard to capture like they would have to have double mm, the amount yeah. of helicopters and people out there to capture actually what's happening out there interviews are one thing but like the actual race stuff and like comms you know when you got f1 and drive to survive there's so much there there's so much that they can grab you know comms yeah. between race and, and driver or uh, race director and driver or whatever and in Dakar, it's like, it's really hard to capture all of that. So it's like, they've been trying to do a really good job of, of boosting all of that. And I know that some teams, obviously, you know, you have the KTM group that are really big into MotoGP now. And so they kind of have that F1 MotoGP vibe that they're trying to, I guess, 
bleed over into the rest of their uh, areas like rally, like, you know, the KTM group, their, their rally program is, is legit. Their trucks are super clean and nice. Their pit area is super clean and nice, you know, and then you have Honda and monster energy and like where they're taking that and what obviously like Honda is such an involved Honda has a formula one program. So it's like, you know, there's so much technology that can be shared. And so it's like, you have different, different teams from different backgrounds that are bringing their own type of flair into it. And it would be such a, an awesome thing. I mean, they can make an entire series, right. uh, uh, like a, a, like a, a, a TV series out of one race. I mean, they make a whole series just out of like one week of the Dakar. There's so much content and there's so many different teams. And like, you know, you have, uh, and you could probably do like and, the, yeah, the trucks, the cars, the dirt bike, you know what I mean? Like you could do series, uh, like moto specific kind of series or vehicle yeah, specific. Like, sorry. It's so, it, there's so much that they could capture. And I think that's going to be like the tough thing is like, okay, it's not just formula one. It's, I mean, you have five different yeah categories and classes. They have a Dakar classic category now, which is insanely pat, uh, uh, popular. So I see, yeah, I don't know. It, it's tough too, because you have a long career that you can have within rally. I mean, you look at Toby, Matias, Sam, uh, Kevin, any of these guys who are in their mid thirties coming up to their late thirties and they're still winning. So it's like, you know, the only reason why they retire is just because they want to be done. They're just kind of over, yeah. but they're still winning. There's no reason to retire because they're still getting like good results. And then you look at like more younger kids who are coming in and it's showing that the experience is actually better. Like the older guys are actually better at this sport is because they understand what it takes. Like the race craft is more defined. So it's like, you know, there needs to be a better amateur level or like a, some type of stepping stone with support for people to kind of get, you know, three to four years of experience before they actually right. think about really trying to push for, for winning and stuff, because it's also really dangerous. If you go out there thinking you're going to win in your first year or two, like you could, you, you could get bit really easily. Don't worry. If I did the car, I would not think that I would win in my first year or two. <laughs> yeah. Just gonna put that out there now. I don't think that I would with, so, so that year that you did have to do it completely as a privateer, the, the ISDE is going on right now, right? They're all racing right now in Argentina. And you can, if you qualify as a club rider, you can raise to go, right? You're probably spending thirty dollars to $40,000, right, to go to the ISDE. But when you go, there is a expectation that the volunteers that are there, that some of the mechanics that come with other riders, the team, the USA team, that you're going to have some help there right now the more people that you have with more experience that come with you probably the better you're going to do especially if it's your first time so i'm kind of like that's my level set for trying to understand now whatever it costs as a privateer to go do to car rally what does it look like in the bivouacs what does it look like on race day like do you literally pay whatever you pay and as a privateer you're a hundred percent on your own or do you know that you're flying x amount of people over and that is kind of like what you would put into your mental fee you know that you're trying to raise money for like what does that look like i guess that's like a lot of logistics you know what i mean like that's kind of 
Yeah, it just depends on how luxury you want to have it because you could essentially have your own motorhome. Like they call it a motorhome, but it's like a small camper van, you know, that you would see cruising the, the like a rental camper van that you would see cruising around USA or something like that. So you can stay in these little camper vans or you can stay in a tent. So everything that you do is either just going to cost more money. So they have a Molly Moto class or the original by Motul class, which is unsupported. So it's kind of six days style. You have to do 100% of the work on your own bike. You can have a competitor help you. So usually at the finish of the stage, there is no time limit at like six days. So you can right. spend six hours working on your bike. And if you've got a big problem, your other competitors can come help you, but you can't have a, a mechanic. So, and then that class, you also, you have to, you're required to sleep in a tent. So there's that, which is much cheaper to do if you, if you want to do it that way. Um, or you can do like the fly and ride program where you essentially pay a hundred grand and everything's taken care of. You show up with your gear. So you have a mechanic, you have uh, like the team handles all of your logistics for you. They handle all your flights and hotel rooms and they have a big truck that kind of like a hotel truck. They got like six bunk beds and some other stuff in the truck that you can stay in there. So you don't have to stay in a tent or like, if you want privacy, you can hire that team to do everything and then spend an extra like 20 grand and have your own like a uh, motor home for the event too. So, you know, as, as nice as you want to wow. have it, you can continue to wow. have it. And then the crazy thing is, is if you want a wristband to go into the bivouac, like if you want to bring your own person as a support person to cook you food or to whatever, just be a, a support person, it's 10 grand per person to get him a wristband to get into the bivouac. And so wow. like, every single person that you want to come over and help you out is an extra 10 grand. So, I mean, you could just be looking at and say 60 or 70 grand is your, is your uh, payment to the team for your bike rental, your tire fee, your mechanic fee, uh, entry fee, all of that kind of business. And then you got an extra 20 for your motor home and an extra 10 for your support person. And like, it can just keep going up and up and up and up and up. So, and then you mentioned wild. the parks thing, like say you're on the tent program, right? Where you're the mechanic, you know, like more six days and stuff like that. Like how does one plan? I, I, you mentioned the tire fee in there. So is like, is it one of those things where you don't need to bring your own tires? Cause you're just like paying somebody organizationally. That's like, okay, I'm getting tires from these people. And then like, but what about parts, right? You're going to be on a Honda, but you're a privateer. Like, do you literally just have to bring any extra parts that you think you would need? Like, you know what I mean? Like, how does one logistically start to think about that? Yeah, the Molly Moto class is, is gnarly because they give you a tote, just like a big, they call it a, a plane a flight box, uh, airplane box. And whatever okay, you need, okay. including your tent and sleeping bag and spare clothes, has to be able to fit in this airplane box. So whatever, like, uh, um, tools you need, whatever spare parts you need and all of that, it's been much, much nicer since they've been into Saudi Arabia because Motul puts in, they bring all of your um, uh, fluids, oils, and all of that. They have tools that you can use to work on there in the bivouac. Uh, BFG is there that have, a, they have a tire service. So once your wheel is off the bike, it's no longer considered part of the bike. So you can actually take your wheel off and go and bring it to the, the BFG guys and have them change your tire for you. What a loophole. Are you kidding yeah. me? That is amazing. Where is yeah. that at the ISCE? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So yeah, there's ways to do it and to spend money. Like, you know, for instance, if you were going to spend say 80 to a hundred grand for like a full service 
uh, team at the Dakar, it might only cost you like maybe 50 to do it like Molly Moto style. Because when you think about it, to, to stop yourself from working so much, you go like two days minimum on oil. You go and go like two to three days on a set of tires because Molly Moto, you're also not trying to win. So you're like much easier on the throttle. You're going to be much more easy on the equipment. If you don't crash, then there's no like repairing that you have to do to the bike. So when you come in, you can just essentially change the air filter, look over the bike and then go straight to sleep and just kind of recover if, if you want. So there's a, there's definitely a system and a way to do it Molly Moto style. And then if you got the team, you know, you got your mechanic, that's going to, that's his job is to stay up all night fixing your bike. So you can, you know, go, go all out if you want, um, de depending on how much your body can take. And if you're breaking parts and you know how much the bike can take too. So. Yeah. Yeah. It really does interest me. I had a ton of fun doing the Baja rally and my dad and I went to somewhere in Nevada with, uh, Ico at the time, Dave. Oh, I can't remember his name. And uh, but I loved it because I grew up timekeeping enduro, and it was like enduro on steroids. You know, the concept yeah. and everything. Like super, you had to not only be paying attention to the to the terrain, but to your point, you had to navigate. You know what I mean? Right. And that, I just loved it. But before I start talking and start asking questions about Honda and all that kinds of things, I rabbit hole like a mother when it comes to nutrition and like you just said, like you're out there, you're up at two 30, you know what I mean? Like the day starts, then you may not be in bed till 11 kind of a thing. Like how do y'all treat nutrition and hydration, right? When you're off the bikes, on the bikes, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of funny because when you look at guys who have really good uh, results at the Dakar, they're always bigger kind of fluffy chubby looking dudes like Toby is not your definition of like a Greek God chiseled freaking buff dude. He's right. just a big guy. Same with Ricky, same with myself, you know, any of the Adrian, you know, he's like, they're all just, we're all just big dudes. And so we can kind of bank on that for our nutrition. So I your take, energy. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, you know, carbo mix and a hydration mix in my, uh, hydration pack. Um, you know, every day. And I drink about three liters and then I carry like energy gels. So like the goo gel. And then I have like gummy bears. Um, I started doing like an energy block, um, which is kind of nice. Cause it's just a bigger, like yep. gooey thing. So it's kind of nice. Um, and then the, I, I have like whatever granola bar is, is wet enough that I can actually chew it. Cause it's hard for me to chew any type of deal. Like you just I bet. smack it down. Um, and then applesauce, like those like children applesauce mm -hmm. packets, the squeeze packs, those are my favorite things. So I'll take like two or three of those, um, you know, and then whatever else I can stuff in there. But at 2 a.m., they have bivouac food, they have breakfast ready. So you can go over there and grab like some, you know, cafe style or a, a buffet style uh, breakfast, which is some like wet eggs or maybe like an oatmeal and just some kind of weird thing stuff that down, get like yogurt and granola if you can. Um, and then as soon as you come in back at the bivouac, uh, they serve pasta all the day, all, all day. So you could actually at three o'clock in the morning, eat a bowl of pasta if you wanted to. Um, nice. so I usually, as soon as I get back in, I'll eat a bowl of pasta shower. Uh, the team has a physio. So I get some like physio and massage work now, which is a definite, uh. that's a massive bonus. Yeah. yeah. And 
and then dinner, which the the bivouac, the the organization supply dinner there too. So everything's all kind of dialed in, and then go to sleep. So I this last year I was able to get to sleep like before ten o'clock almost every day, which was pretty nice. So yeah. I actually got some pretty good rest. What do you think calorically? How much uh, calories are you are you able to ingest? Uh, you're burning probably fifteen thousand a day. You know what I mean? Like. I can I would burn think, anywhere like you're about the bigger guys since you have so much. Let's just say you're fluffier, right? You, you're carrying a little bit more fat on your, your yeah. person. Like your body's breaking that down, turning that into glucose, putting that in your bloodstream. And that's where some of your some of your energy can come from. And I think that you would probably lose a lot of weight from start to finish because of that. And it's not just water weight. It's actually your body breaking itself down for energy. Yeah. So the first Dakar, I lost like almost 12 pounds. Yeah. I like dude it was I, I lost a ton of weight and then slowly i've been able to figure out how to like eat enough so this last dakar i actually did pretty good i only lost like less than five pounds while i was over there which nice. is kind of nice but yeah i don't know a lot of the other guys they rely on their food that they're eating all the time like when you see they come in they're just stuffing their face with food and trying to drink as much water as possible like they'll drink three liters of water before they even get to the refueling zone like halfway and then you got Toby who comes in and he drinks one water bottle and he's only got like less than a liter of water in his hydration pack that he's carried with him that he hasn't even really drank. And then he'll maybe eat like a Snickers candy bar or something like that. Crazy. So, <clears throat> I try to do a little bit more than that. I try to eat as much as I can and try to keep my body fueled and whatnot. But yeah, being a little bit bigger is, is I think kind of a, a benefit in the rally racing. So. Interesting. I will give you one recommendation you mentioned and, and uh, just check it out. Fuel for Fire is a really cool product. It's essentially what you're talking about. It's the, the little baby foods or the little applesauces, right? That you just. Mm. But um, they are not that you need to be drug tested or anything like that, but they're, they're NS, NS4, NSF sports certified. So if you're in a sport where you need to be drug tested, you could take that for sure and not have any issues. But there are ones where they, now they add protein and other things. So if you're looking for a different like uh, mix of your macronutrients than just straight carbs, it's a great resource to look into. It's called Fuel for Fire. So just a th thought, thought to throw that out there. And maybe future sponsor, right? You know, you reach out and be like, look what we're doing. I'd love to use your product. It's for two weeks in Dakar. <laughs> but, <laughs> No, we can see do. where that goes. Um, okay. Big news, right? Before you went to crash yourself, trash your brains out was that you're now racing for team HRC, like the rally team. Like how awesome is that dude? Like talk to us about this. How did the heck did all this come about? Yeah, it's uh, pretty awesome. So I mean, I got my start. I learned how to ride a dirt bike on a Honda on a 1974 XR 75 when I was three years old. And I got my start into rally on a Honda. I was riding a CRF 450X when I raced my first rally. And so, I don't know, it kind of all came full circle. And this is a spot that I was hoping to land on in the first place. So to end up here is like a massive achievement in my career and just overall life, like it's pretty sick. But you know, after I finished on the podium with, with Husqvarna, um, my contract was set to expire this year. And so we got into uh, contract negotiations and they're pretty uh, stickler on things. Like for instance, I had a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I had a couple offers to drive four wheeled vehicles and uh, race like, um, so my family's history 
my grandpa built a famous race car and a new company has since recreated that into like a modern version. And they wanted me to race that at the Baja 1000. And I was blocked from doing that under my Husky contract. Uh, and so interesting. There was, there was a handful of like terms in my contract that were kind of like that, that I was really trying to push hard to get, uh, to get rid of. And there was a lot of other things too, like, you know, with uh, the way every single rally contract works as far as your pay goes is, is um, if you finish at a certain place at the Dakar, that determines like how much you should be paid. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, it came down to like hand, a handful of those terms and how much I was getting paid. And I don't know if it was budget, budget cuts or whatever it was, it just wasn't going into my favor. And so we had like a lot of really firm discussions and I was, you know, handling all on my own business. And at the end of the day, what it came down to was what I was, you know, as a Dakar podium or winning competitor and someone who's fighting for the win at the Dakar, um, I didn't feel like what their offer was, was, you know, like it wasn't equal what I was risking and what it requires you to risk to, to win the Dakar, uh, you know, it basically just, it, it wasn't coming to terms. And so I told them, I said, Hey, look, I get it. Um, I, I have achieved something really cool and something I'm proud of. And I am, I'd be happy to leave it here, but it is not in my, I, I don't want to look back and say, and, and risk my life and know that it's not that it's just not mm-hmm. making sense the risk is not worth worth the reward at this point i've already sacrificed so much to get to this point i don't want to continue to sacrifice and it's strange to say that to be have a factory ride and then to still say that yeah. uh, but it, but i understand where you're coming from yeah yeah the pressure and the expectation and all of that kind of stuff that comes with factory ride it just you know it wasn't making sense to me and so i told them i just said hey look you know i appreciate your opportunity and and this has been, you know, an awesome ride. And I, I feel like I've been a great ambassador for the company, but you know, if, if we can't come to terms on this, all I ask is that we shake hands and we move in different directions. And there was a lot of, you know, back and forth and some turmoil and stuff, but at the end of the day, that's what happened. They said, Hey, look, you know, uh, thank you, but, uh, we're going to have to shake hands and move different directions. So, and at that time, then, I, I have an agent now. And so I hit up my agent. I said, Hey dude, I'm, I'm, I'm free. I'm a free agent now. I'm looking. I, don't re- <laughs> I don't really have like a direction. I don't really know where I'm going to go here. Like, what can we do? And then, you know, I got a, got a phone call from Honda and, and the deal went super quick from there. And so I got an opportunity to continue on with my career and, and continue to try and like, uh, you know, go for my goals and stuff. So with that, now I signed a deal that, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, and I'll be able to like, you know, continue racing at Dakar and shoot for that. Plus I have some freedom now that I can take those opportunities and go race some four wheeled stuff. And as you know, like the direction that Toby's going to, like at the end of a two wheel career, you you always want to go into a four wheel career too. And so to have that opportunity to be able to like, you know, get some sort of resume and hopefully have some type of career in four wheels afterwards would be, you know, ideal. So to have that opportunity now is going to be sick. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. We did have a question uh, from Instagram that was like, how, how hard has it been adjusting to the Honda and what's the biggest, biggest difference? Um, 
a dirt bike's a dirt bike, you know, like for me, I, I try not to be very sensitive. Like now with, I, I, now I kind of have to be like, in order to be comfortable at the speeds we're going, you have to be sensitive. Like you have to be very picky about your setting, but at the end of the day, it's a dirt bike. Like if I can get it to about 80% everywhere, like feels comfortable in the rocks, comfortable in the sand dunes, comfortable in the riverbeds and, you know, and then on the hard pack roads, then I'm good. And so it took me, I think maybe two hours of testing and I was comfortable on Honda and I've grown up also on a Japanese bike. You know, I, I learned how to ride on the Honda. I went from like Kawasaki to Yamaha back to Honda and I I've, I've always been kind of on a Japanese bike. And so to hop on the Honda, I like felt kind of right at home. Like I was actually super stoked at how comfortable I felt right away. And every change I made was always like in a better direction. So it's cool because, you know, I moved directly from developing a bike under the KTM brand. And then now I'm moving over onto the Honda side to develop a new bike as well. And so to take, like all this knowledge that I've learned over the course of the last couple of years and be able to like have my feeling be able to put my feeling like out into words and actually make the changes yeah. like, okay. Cause it's, you know, if you talk to anyone about suspension setting and like, Hey, the bike's kicking. How is it kicking? Is it going up and down? Is it going side to side? Yeah. Is it going this, like, you know, whatever. And, instead of saying, Hey, the bike's kicking, come in and be like, actually, what I think we should do is I think we should take three clickers out of the rebound, or I think we should, uh, you know, add three clickers to the rebound and just make suggestions like that. We're like, Hey, the bike is moving like this. I think we should change this. You know, all of that has been really nice, but I don't know. I spent, I spent some good years on a, on an Austrian bike and I got comfortable there and we, we did really good work, but I feel at home on the, on the Honda, like this thing feels nice. So it's been a quick, easy adjustment that, um, now I'm, I, I have time also to make further adjustments and even get more comfortable, which is, is a good feeling. That's cool. With the, another question from Instagram, it's like, we're seeing more manufacturers putting out rally bikes. So like, Mm -hmm. How are they different? Do you know, like, and I think like you could look at a lot of 450s, you know, like Supercross, and you can kind of see how you said, like, somebody gets on a Honda, they know what a Honda's going to do. You kind of say the same about Cowie, some of the Austrian stuff. Like, is that starting to happen with rally bikes that you're starting to see these differences between manufacturers? Or are they all still relatively the same type of bike because like rally is still getting sorted out by a lot of engineers? Yeah, that's that's actually a really good question. So there's a lot of like third-party companies that make rally kits for bikes. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is to make a standard off-road bike or a motocross bike and turn that into a rally bike. It, it really throws off the ergonomics because a lot of people think that when you are, you know, when you're adding stuff to the bike that you're, that's all you're doing. But in reality, like when we develop bikes, we're, we're uh, testing swing arm lengths, uh, linkage ratios, the height of suspension, like the ride height of everything, um, you know, the flex, the uh, triple clamp flexing and offset. I mean, there's so much details that are just going into the ergonomics and chassis. When you add 34 liters of fuel, it can completely change the entire 
bike. And so to take, say, like a KTM 500 or a like a Honda 450X and just throw big tanks on it in a rally tower and go, yep, I got a rally bike now. It's not really that simple. Like it takes a lot of different other really key things to make it work good. Now, I'm not saying that the average rider can't do that and go and have a great time. But if you're really trying to like push the envelope and like race and race heavy, you know, to the, the proper setup of of the bike, it, it really matters. Now with Honda, they don't produce a customer 450 rally bike. So the, our race bike is a hundred percent works custom. Like everything is handmade perfectly exactly how I want it. You know, like they come out and they have their bike that's developed, but as far as like setup and suspension and, you know, foot peg placement and all of this is like perfect to how I want it. And, you know, with the KTM group, they have a customer rally bike. And so essentially their job or their, their vision is to take a customer based rally bike and be able to like put it under a factory rider. So they're trying to take that same base and make, you know, essentially a, 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 a really nice race bike off of that customer bike. And so, yeah, there's some key differences there between the two manufacturers as far as like what type of product they're producing and what they're going to like try and race with and stuff. But yeah, uh, yeah, as far as like manufacturers building rally bikes and how different they are, like that's tough because yeah, they're both still based off of like, you know, their dirt bikes that they have manufactured. But as far as like being like being like a customer trying to like, just take a regular motocross bike or off-road bike and turn it into a rally bike themselves. Like it's yeah, that it's a lot. Take, yeah. It would take a lot. <laughs> well, I can even, it's just like what you say, like if you conceptually think about it, you take your bike, okay, well not only do you have a bigger tank in the front, well, you actually have a bigger tank in the back. Right. And that's why you guys now have the exhaust is now moved back down below so that you could fit the bigger gas tank in the back. And then you add the tower, obviously, like just that alone, you know, if you did those kinds of things, probably to what you're saying, like a production frame, I mean, that bike probably would handle like shit, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, and so then there's the thing to your point that it's like, well, now is it triple clamps? Is it suspension tuning? Is it the uh, the things you mentioned from the rear part of the bike? And the answer is probably yes and. Like it's not, yeah. it's unfortunately not like you said, it's it, at that point, it's not just a kit anymore. You really have to fine tune for the riders. So I could see how that could be a little difficult to figure out. Well, I'm glad you've <laughs> yeah. got a uh, team, team HRC behind you though, now to, to keep pushing with it. I did have to ask though, for those that still have amazing mustaches like you do and that are looking for products, what, uh, what should they go look for? Dude, I don't know, man. This is just genetics right here. This is, there's no product in this thing. Well, I just get the out problem of the shower, is, is not everyone. Flip. You're not going to be able to mate with everybody that wants to have such a good-looking mustache. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't know, dude. Like it, the the hard thing is, is once it starts getting long, like how to trim it up right. I'm going for the whole like, uh, you know, cowboy type of deal, but yeah, you know, we'll see. Well, dude, I know uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but in the long run, like, what did I miss? 
What are other things maybe that are just not, that you didn't get a chance to share or that is it just hasn't come out to be able to talk about and stuff like that? No, I don't know. I think actually that's probably the most in-depth that I've gone uh, gone in about my contract stuff. Like I obviously want to stay respectful and oh, know, yeah. all that uh, about the whole contract thing. So that's, that's kind of cool to be able to talk about that a little bit more in-depth and whatnot. But uh, no, I think as far as like, my whole program and all of that and where things are at i think yeah with my career i've made like a really good move here and i'm happy where i'm at now and i was happy there too but like this was a, a really good step in my career and happy to have made that and uh i don't know i'm stoked to be able to recover from these injuries and yeah i know that rally racing is a bit high speed and dangerous and stuff but to be able to recover and go back and keep trying to put usa more and more on the map and get more people out here racing. I think that's the, the whole goal and dream of this whole thing. So stoked to be able to talk about it. Thanks. That's awesome, dude. Well, obviously I appreciate your time and all the information that you share with us. So thank you very much. Cool. Thanks for having me on, dude. What did you guys think? What was some of the most interesting points that you took away from what Skylar Howells was telling us about all of the rally racing that he's been doing, getting himself into, and now making it onto one of the top factory teams racing rally around the world. Again, the airbag is super interesting to me, but bike setup and how what they're doing at Honda is such a factory works effort where something like KTM is they're trying to sell a rally bike to consumers. So they're taking that bike and then building it up to be essentially what could be works from there. And the two different dynamics that are going on for the two different manufacturers of these rally bikes. Obviously, other manufacturers have it interesting as well. The nutrition part is interesting to me as well and i know you guys know that i like to dive into that as well so hit the comments with any questions that you might have obviously what was it that you thought was interesting and other racers and riders that you'd like me to eventually chat with on the seat time podcast please head to shop.seattime.co grab yourself a shirt if you want to you know, just spend a little bit of money saying thank you for what we do put out there. But of course, please go check out the Utility Can Caddy so that you can stay organized AF as you're out there getting seat time. Guys, have a great November. We'll see you next month. And guys, it's almost 2024. Do you have any goals? I know I do. We'll be announcing them soon. Enjoy getting seat time.